the Gospel of Mark. And we've been in the Gospel of Mark for close on to a year now. We had a short series on the Gospel we share on evangelism, and now we're jumping back into Mark. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and look under the chairs of the center aisle. We have extras there for you. Or you can just open up your phone's browser and search Mark 12. We'll be reading from the ESV version. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 12, versículos 13 a 17. After four weeks away, we're now returning, and we're here in chapter 12. This places us on Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus is in Jerusalem, okay? He's on his way to the cross on Friday afternoon. We're 48 hours away. Mark has slowed down dramatically. The final four chapters of Mark and the final three months of this sermon series cover a mere five days. Five days. That's it. And this day, this day, you better believe it was significant. So with that, turn your attention to Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you go before us today by your spirit? Would you... Would you help this weak and insufficient man to proclaim what you would have me to proclaim? Would you open our ears and our hearts to be ministered to by your spirit and to encounter Jesus freshly once again? It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've heard me say it many times before that the late R.C. Sproul would tell his seminary students in his five steps to preparing a sermon, step number two was what? Find the drama. 
And this passage is chock full of drama. And the drama that this passage ends with is different than the drama that it begins with. It ends with gospel drama. It begins with political drama. We're going to get political today. Taxes and government and politics. But that's not what this story is about. That's not what this text is about. Jesus, with, with all the poise and all the authority of the Son of God himself, he brings it back around to our hearts. He brings it back around to us. He brings it back to our responsibility before God. And and he brings it back around to the cross that he is marching toward. He takes another step in this passage toward that cross. So if you thought that you would just sit back and enjoy a Sunday of, of political drama and intrigue and we'd sit here and talk about politics, I'm so sorry that's not the case. I think God has something different in store for you because he's looking at you here Jesus has you in mind he has your heart in mind and he makes a stunning statement in verse 17 about your life about my life that is in fact one of the most important things that he's ever said So before we get to verse 17, though, we have to start at verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. Jesus is in the temple, and they send him some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Who are they? Well, Mark isn't specific, but he's probably referring to the the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of 70 people plus the high priest, 71 people comprised of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They are the religious elite of the day. There is no one more elite than them in Jerusalem. Why did the Pharisees, or why did the Sanhedrin send these Pharisees and Herodians? Verse 13, to trap him. In fact, in the next three stories, the Sanhedrin sends the Pharisees to try to trap him, and then they send the Sadducees, and then they send the scribes, each individually, with with their own unique trap. Why are they trying to trap him? Well, if you remember, in verse 11, Jesus came into Jerusalem, and he walked into the temple complex, and he physically and verbally threw out the corruption that these guys were responsible for. The temple that was, that was a house of prayer for the nations, they had corrupted it and made it into a marketplace. And Jesus came in and literally threw it out. And then the next day, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, Jesus tells a parable about tenants in a vineyard who refused to give the owner of the vineyard the fruit that's due to him. He sends servant after servant to go and and acquire what is due to the owner, and with every servant they beat that servant and send him away empty-handed. And then the servant, or then the owner does what? Sends his son. And what do they do to his son? They kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. 
refusing to give the owner what he is due. Jesus didn't even have to say that the parable was about them. Look at verse 12, a verse before our text today. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew it was about them. They knew it was about them. They've gone from irritated over the last three years to angry to now murderously furious. But they can't just arrest him because Jesus at this point, was very popular with the people. And they knew that if they tried to seize him, there would be an uprising against them. So what do they do? He had come into the city of Jerusalem to cries of Hosanna from the mouths of thousands of people. And though the the temple cleansing had upset the religious leaders, there were probably a lot of people in Jerusalem who said, yeah, that needed to happen. And a lot of people... uh, received him even more because of that. His popularity probably grew more because of that. But Wednesday, today, this is a turning point. One commentator notes, on Monday the cry is Hosanna. On Friday the cry is crucify him. Crucify him. Wednesday's the turning point. So find the drama indeed. The people do turn against him. And that's part of the aim of the Pharisees and the Herodians here. Look at verse 14. And they came and said to him, teacher, this is drips, drips with sarcastic flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true. And we know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar Caesar, or not? <laughs> Together, the Herodians and the Pharisees ask this question. Have you ever heard of the, the term uh, an, an odd couple? Uh, an odd couple is the kind of couple, maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a couple of friends even, that you look at and go, I wouldn't have pegged them to be friends in a million years. That's an odd couple. Or, or maybe it's the, the classic, you know, uh, beauty queen and chess club captain getting married. You look at that and go, that's an odd couple. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they were like the original odd couple. They, they were never found in the same place. They never talked kindly to one another and of one another. They hated each other. And that is no, that, that's not too strong to say the Pharisees, they were the most concerned people in the land about the law of God. The Herodians, they were concerned with the law of Rome. The Pharisees were most devoted to Israel. The Herodians were devoted to Caesar. The Pharisees were intensely religious and the Herodians were intensely political. These guys did not intersect on anything. The Pharisees hated the Herodians. They had sold their soul in their eyes. 
Because Herodian was a follower of the Herodian family. Herod Antipas was, was the king in the land. And he was only king in the land because he and his family had bowed to Rome. They, they, had, they had bent a knee before these, these idolatrous, blasphemous pagans. And as a result, Rome gave Herod Antipas and his family his paltry jurisdiction in Galilee. And the Pharisees hated them. But a common enemy gave birth to this odd couple. That's the only thing they shared in common was their hatred of Jesus. Now here's the thing. The Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus for his theology. Okay? But under Roman rule, Jewish, Jewish leaders could not execute anybody. But the Romans weren't going to kill Jesus for his theology. They didn't care about that so long as it didn't, it didn't cause disruption in their society. The only way the Romans would kill Jesus was for his political views, was for his violation of Roman law. So if you're trying to trap somebody in their words, what's the best way to set them up? I'm not asking you from your experience because you would never try to capture anybody in their words, right? You would never try to trap somebody. None of us here have ever done that, right? I'm sure some of us have. So if any of us are speaking from experience, we would know that the best way to set somebody up is to corner them, to back them into a corner where they have no way out. And that's what they're doing to Jesus with their flattering words here in verse 14. They're essentially saying, Jesus, you, <laughs> you don't, you don't really care about the, the opinions of anybody, do you? We know that you don't care about appearances. We know that, that you only speak the truth. <laughs> we know that you will only teach the truth of God. Brutally and ironically. These were some of the most accurate words this group of men had ever spoken. And there would be no end to their pain as they reflected on those words when they realized who Jesus really was. No true words had been spoken by them. In verse 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. They're saying to Jesus, if a question with no safe answer is posed to you, Jesus, we know you won't avoid it. You'd answer truthfully no matter the consequences, wouldn't you, Jesus? Right? Commentator James Edwards says, hoping to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, they ask, is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Two options here, Jesus. The tax referred to here is, it's called the, the imperial poll tax, which was, the, the, the price for which was a denarius per person, roughly a day's wages. And on the coin of this denarius was the bust or the face of Tiberius Caesar, whom Rome had elevated to, to the position of 
semi-deity. His father, Caesar Augustus, had been elevated to the position of deity, to a god. And on this coin, on a denarius, was the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. This was the coin charged for the poll tax. And the poll tax was a census tax. So if you appeared in the census, you owed this tax. This tax was, was a tax for the privilege of living under Roman occupation. How happy do you think the Jews were to pay this tax? How happy do you think they were to give their money over to the Romans for the privilege of living under Roman occupation. They didn't exactly love it. So this question has no safe answer. Track with me here. This is, this, is, this is insidious what they're doing. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then he immediately loses the support of the people. If he says, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, he commits a capital offense in the eyes of Rome. If he says yes, that the people will see him as a sympathizer to the, the idolatrous, blasphemous, pagan Romans. If he says no, he brings down the Roman imperium upon himself. Talk about a dilemma, and they're thinking, we've got him. We've got him. And so the crowd goes silent. Just picture the scene, the crowd goes silent waiting for an answer, and Jesus breaks the silence, and the Pharisees are just waiting on the edge of their seats. What is he going to say? He has to say yes or no. And Jesus breaks the silence, verse 15. He says, why put me to the test? He knew their hearts. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. <laughs> and you can just imagine they're frantically searching, like, okay, who's got a denarius? We'll find one. And they give it to him. And he says, he says to them, verse 16, he says, whose inscription, who, whose image and inscription is on this denarius? And they're like, Caesar's! <laughs> it's Caesar's! This is going great! This is going exactly how we wanted it to go. It's Caesar's. What are you going to say, Jesus? This is Caesar's coin. What Jesus says next, author Philip Ryken says, is one of the most important things that Jesus says about it about anything. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Since the image and inscription belong to Caesar, Jesus says the coin belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. Render it to him. Pay the tax. But with this statement, Jesus at the same time recognizes the legitimacy of human government and the limitations of human government. What I mean by that is that by, by sharply distinguishing between Caesar and God, he affirms man's duty to Caesar but also affirms that Caesar is not God. God is. And God is established 
human government. Therefore, pay the tax. Romans 13, 1. A, a, a verse that has been in, in frequent discussion, especially during the, the pandemic era of the last few years. Let every person be subject to human authority. For, and this is why, this is why every person should be subject to human authority. For, there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that do exist have been instituted by whom? By God. That's the basis for Jesus' answer here. So guess what? Californians, pay your taxes. Are, are California taxes crazy? Yeah. Pay your taxes. Th- this week, studying this text, I've actually spent more time thinking about taxes than I have in a long time. And you know, I, I went back into my, my payroll account at work and I looked at my recent pay stubs and I just thought, gosh, how much am I paying in taxes? And I was reminded of this wonderful reality that almost a third of what I make is paid in taxes to the government. And then when we pay our mortgage, we pay more taxes. And then when I buy something at the store, I pay more taxes. And when we go out to eat at a restaurant, pay, pay taxes on that. And when we, we buy groceries, pay taxes on that. I was thinking, goodness gracious, we pay a lot of taxes. We pay a lot of taxes. And it is one of the most frequent gripes of Californians, isn't it? I'm moving to Texas, moving to Florida. Taxes here are terrible. Listen, I, like the first century Jews, I'm very prone to grumble about this. Can you relate? Does it bring you joy to pay taxes? Listen, though our government is imperfect in its application of authority, its authority nevertheless comes from God. We can never forget that. And there exists in human government something that theologians call God's common grace. Have you ever, have you ever heard of that term, common grace? Co- common grace means God's kindness expressed to all mankind. God's goodness and kindness that's expressed to and experienced by all mankind. Uh, Jesus describes this in Matthew 5, cha- Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. He says, he, the Father, God, makes the Son rise on the evil and the good. The the warmth of the light of the sun falls on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, on the crops of the just and on the crops of the unjust. That is common grace. He He has put government in place for the evil and the good, for the just and the unjust. And listen, through Caesar's rule, (laughs) it's a matter of perspective here. Yes, through Caesar's rule, Christians were persecuted and killed and and put into the Colosseum and killed by, by beasts and burned at the stake. But through Caesar's rule, the Jews benefited from aqueducts and the best roads in the world and a peace called the Pax Romana that was unparalleled in that time in ancient history. They benefited from Rome's unparalleled standing army. 
They benefited from a strong economy under Roman rule. So application point number one here, friends. Pay your taxes and give God thanks for the benefits of your government. Give God thanks for the benefits of your government. Think, think about the last time that you were tempted to grumble about government or politics or, or road construction or taxes. It probably isn't too far in your distant memory. But think about the last time that you expressed thanksgiving to God for the clean water you drink, you, you drink from the water district. May I remind you that Santa Ana has some of the best water in America. <laughs> When's the last time that you, you thanked God for the freeway system in Orange County that's not LA's freeway system? Praise the Lord. When was the last time that you thanked God for the outcome of that road construction? When was the last time that you thanked God for the government-contracted waste services companies that cart your trash away every day? When was the last time that you thanked God for postal workers? Whoever owned postal workers here in this church who deliver your mail and make sure that you get the things that you needed? When was the last time that you thanked God for, for firemen and policemen? For social workers and probation officers that serve wayward neighbors in Santa Ana. When was the last time you thanked God for those? Juxtaposed against the last time that you grumbled about government and taxes and politics. Well, friends, our hearts should be disposed toward gratitude for God's grace through government. Yes, it's imperfect. Yes, there are flaws abounding, but there's so much grace. But I won't spend any more time talking about government and politics. Do you know why? Because that's not the main point here. Jesus says, before you go, guys, <laughs> render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. <laughs> but there is something much more important to bring to your attention And that is what you owe to God. Now that we've talked about what you owe to Caesar, now let's talk about what you owe to God. Render to God the things that are God's. Sinclair Ferguson paraphrases, Jesus says, I see another coin bearing a different image. I see you men. And I see the image of God stamped on your lives. So I conclude you must give to God what belongs to him. Let's talk about that, guys. And he said it, and they marveled at him because he, they knew, they knew the weight of what he had said. The Pharisees didn't see this coming. Suddenly, it's about them. Suddenly, it's about what they owe. Suddenly, they're on the hot seat. Suddenly, Jesus brings up their indebtedness to God. The owner of the vineyard has said to them, render what you owe, and they said, no. That's a connection between this passage and verses 1 through 12, and Jesus is making that clear to them. The owner of the vineyard had said, Render to me what you owe. 
And Jesus is in effect saying, you guys know that you haven't rendered that. And yet you're concerned about taxes. This is so much more surprising than the previous radical pronouncement because it would be a serious sin to withhold taxes, but it would be a much more serious sin to withhold one's life from God. Much more. And what belongs to God, friends? Listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. The Apostle Paul says, For from him and through him and to him, to God, are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything. There is not a moment of your life exempted from that. There is not a possession that you have exempted from that. There's not a relationship in your life exempted from that. There is not a task in your life exempted from that. Render to God that which belongs to him, and it all belongs to him. C.J. Mahaney says that, that, that Jesus is saying, will you give to God what is due to God by humbling yourself and submitting your whole life to me? God the Son, standing right before you and addressing you. And God the Son addresses us just the same as he addresses them. So it wasn't just the Pharisees who are in debt. We are too. Friends, don't you see yourself in the Pharisees consumed with, with having to pay taxes and consumed with worldly things and consumed with, with things like money. Gosh, how consuming is money to us. Worrying over petty political complaints, grumbling about the unfairness of what you have to pay for this or that and the other while ignoring that every moment of your life is owed to God. Application point number two here. Render your life to God. Render your life to God. It bears the image of God and thus belongs to Him. God deserves it. Ask yourself, how can I render to God what belongs to him at work, at school, at home, on the court or, or on the field? What of my life am I not rendering to God in my downtime, in the things I watch or see or look at or listen to? What, what of my life am I not Rendering to God in my leisure time, when I have the choice of how to spend my time, how, how can I render my life to God and how I spend and save my money? Do this. Spend some time this week. Invite somebody else into that conversation. Do this, but lean in here. Listen closely. Listen closely. What I find when I ask myself these questions, is that there's a lot lacking. There is too much that I have not rendered to God that is due to Him. 
what I find when I ask those questions is that I am deeply, deeply, deeply in debt. A debt that I know I can't repay. Listen, the shadow of the cross looms large over this passage. In these words, Jesus looks forward two days from now to a moment when he will render his life to God for us in our place. Friends, the one commanding us to render all to him is the one who rendered his life in our place for our sins. His rendering goes before our rendering. His rendering precedes our rendering. There is no rendering from us if he has not rendered his life for us. And we have the privilege of looking in hindsight. But in this moment, he's two days from that moment. And here in this passage, he takes another step toward that cross. Knowing that there is nobody in his audience then or now who has rendered their life to God. He knows that he's about to render his own blood so that you and I can joyfully render. So let me be clear. Our rendering in no way, in no way, earns his love. Our rendering our lives to God in no way earns forgiveness. In no way is it a form of of earning his acceptance. His rendering of his life goes before our rendering of ours in repentance and faith. One pastor says, he must first rescue us from our sins by rendering his life for our sins. How good is that? We must first be rescued by him before we can render all to him. So, friends, our rendering is only the appropriate response to his rescuing. And if you've not been rescued by Jesus, don't try to leave here and take that step of rendering your life to him. Because you can't. And you will do it imperfectly. But if you place your faith in him, and you say, Jesus, I need you to stand in my place. And I trust that your sacrifice alone is sufficient. And I repent of my lack of rendering my life. And ask for your forgiveness. His rendering of his life in your place is really in your place. And you then now have a reason to go and render your life to God. So application point number three here, render in response to the rescue. Celebrate the rescue. Celebrate Jesus' rendering of his life for you. Repent and believe in him. And for those of you who are Christians, 
Live lives of repentance and faith that lead to rendering your life to him. Verse 17, the the very last part, and they marveled at him. Our marveling should be way different from their marveling because they were were marveling at, at how ingenious his answer was. They said, well, you got around us. We should marvel in a different way than they marveled. Oh, but we should marvel. We should marvel. This passage should make us so grateful for grace. So grateful for grace. When we see and remember how high is the requirement of living lives for God, that it means the totality of our lives, and we see how far short we have come of that standard, when we see the depth and extent of our debt to him and we see Jesus' life rendered in grace for us, we should live in awe of that. Those of you who are participating in the spring class tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about how to live your life in response to the rescue, rendering your life to God. You should marvel differently than them. But you should marvel nevertheless at his grace and then render all to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, before we say anything else, we confess that we have not rendered all to you. Our lives bear your image. They bear the very imprint of God. And that's inescapable. We can run from that. We can deny that. We can, we can distract from it but we owe our lives to you and we haven't given our lives to you. So we thank you, Lord, that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could live our lives to you knowing that when we fail to do so, Jesus' sacrifice still remains and our acceptance is still found in him. Thank you, Father, that your son rendered his life to rescue us from our sins. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.